0: Brown, and welcome to episode two of Radicals in Conversation In-house. This is the new podcast series from Pluto Press, produced in collaboration with Bookhouse, an independent bookshop located in the heart of Bristol. Every month, alongside our regular show, we'll be sharing an episode recorded on location in Bookhouse as part of their fantastic in-house events programme. These events feature authors of some of the most exciting radical non-fiction that's being published today. This month's episode is with Azfar Shafi and Ilyas Nagdi, co-authors of Race to the Bottom, Reclaiming Anti-Racism, which was published last month in Pluto's Outspoken series. Chairing this conversation here is Naya from Bookhouse, and the three of them discuss the history of anti-racist organising in Britain, from the Black Power movement and the 1981 uprisings, to the emergence of an anti-racism from above, orientated around issues of visibility and inclusion. They also talk about theorising race and racism, the history of policing and the challenges and opportunities that the anti-racist movement faces today. If you want to find out more about the book, then you can head over to bookhousebristol.com and of course that's house spelt H-A-U-S. In the meantime, here are Naya, Asfar and Ilias on Radicals and Conversation in-House. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: So I want to begin with something that you say at the very beginning of the book which is that the current popular discourse on anti-racism betrays a glaring lack of theoretical depth. And I kind of want to ask you both, how is it that we've got to this point where there are so many texts being churned out about race and anti-racism that don't have this theoretical depth? How have they got so popular?
2: Yeah, as I'm starting, I say, okay, thanks to the book house for hosting us and uh, for Pluto for making the book happen. How is it the questions of like privileged politics, of unconscious bias, of representation and so on have come to predominate the question of racism and race in Britain, when the reality of racism is so stark is it's life or death, it's the question of state violence, and so on. How has that been erased from the conversation? So how is it they've gained favour? I think that's a that's a common pattern of commodification under capitalism. It's nothing new or I mean, unique in that respect. The question we really need to ask and we're trying to address in the book is how have we got to the point where any racism, which in recent British history within the last sort of four decades, was such a powerful potent politics that uh, fused few socialism fuse anti imperialism fuse um, I guess the best traditions of like third world struggle in the global south how is that a race? in favour of this very mild, militantist politics so we try to address that and I think ultimately it rested on a historical process whereby there was a decoupling of these sort of anti-capitalist uh, anti imperialist imperatives from anti-racism race became like a standalone subject or topic it reduced the question solely of identity or social representations of people of non-white um, descent and ultimately what we identify is that the emergence of state multiculturalism from like, the late 80s onwards, uh, really coming to the, I guess, this crescendo in the new Lab government, was when anti racism was fully stripped of like an insurgent threat to status quo, a threat to political order, into effectively. Providing like window dressing for the state and for capitalism as it existed. Saint Michael Crouchism, very liberal form sort of politics, so we yeah, excise all the radical elements of anti-racism in Britain, excised this sort of the ghost of anti-racist past, and became this another way of representing Britain in its diversity. And I think we're trying to again trace historically uh, what the process was to happen, why did it happen, who the actors involved in that, and I'm sure we'll talk about more detail over the course of the event.
1: So I suppose a more kind of casual question I'd like to ask a bit about. I suppose the writing process is do you feel like you have produced a book that is theoretically substantial do you feel like you've done what you set out to do to kind of provide a rebuttal of the current vacuous anti-racist politics that we're seeing and also because citation is incredibly important could you just name a few theorists or individuals perhaps or organizations that have been instrumental in the formation of these ideas um, and the writing that you've done
3: yeah um so it's important to preface that neither of us come from a sort of academic background as it is. Uh, putting together this book has literally been combining sort of like a decade of Google Docs that we've both been like putting down our thoughts and thinking in terms of where anti-racist struggle is going and where we find the lack of theory that's governing modern anti-racist movements. In terms of which theorists we turn back to particularly, uh, I think we'll both, without a doubt, have to say that we pay great tribute to Seven Anden in particular and to all the workings of race and class and the materials from the Institute of Race Relations, as well as all the theorists that were around at the time who contributed so much to third world Marxist literature, in particular sort of thinking about writers who write about race and Britain, Stuart Hall, Darkus Howe, the Race Today Collective in general, like we went back and we looked a lot at those documentations as well as the activist groups that existed at the time that arose from the 1981 uprisings, the defence campaigns, the Moss Side defence campaign, the Brixton defence campaign and others as well as citations from things like the declassified documents from uh, Thatcher's time as prime minister and the great work of organisations like the special branch files and the undercover research network and others I've done the work of categorising and putting together the work of the spy cops database and uh, yeah the citations of the Individuals from that period, particularly those who weren't just coming at this from an academic perspective but were actively engaged in struggle, were instrumental. Uh, and like we cite them throughout the book. But first and foremost, I think just because you played a key part in both of our political development, um, Sivan Andon's work is one that we still find to be severely underreferenced and underappreciated in our understanding of race in Britain today.
2: Yeah, and just to add on, it's sort of the combination of like reflections we've had in the course of organizing and racism and coming up against sort of similar barriers, which when we went back and recovered the literature from the seventies, from the eighties, in the late sixties, realized that people had figured these out well before we existed before our times and we tried to figure out why we come up against the same barriers time and time again. And how's it the case that people again decades before us made more sense of our present than us in the present trying to organise for it. So ultimately it's sort of bridging the work, the literature, the um struggles of people from that time to what we saw now. It's so, all yeah. And like Elis mentioned, if nothing else, it's a 180-page love letter to Silver Anden, the late director of the <laughs> Institute of Racial Relations. And I think, you know, the milieu around him, the Race Today collective, I think there's a lot of work that is in archives, in, in journals, not necessarily digitised, but it really should be recovered and I guess gone through again for our times.
1: Okay, so to kind of sum up, maybe quite crudely, what the book does is it revisits this particular period in history, which we're both going to expand on throughout this talk, where we see the kind of black power struggle of the 60s and the 70s, and then this kind of what you deem to be an anti-racism from above that sets in motion kind of post-1981. I just want to ask briefly about the focus on this particular historical period, but also the focus of kind of choosing a particular historical period, referencing back to it and seeing what we can learn from today. I suppose my question is what do you hope to achieve by revisiting this point of history, if this is an aim of yours at all? And again, why this particular conflict? Why is it important for today's struggle and what residues kind of persist?
3: So the reason we've gone back to this particular part of history, so for those that uh, haven't seen the book Centres and takes a lot of lessons from the 1981 uprisings and its aftermath, um, is because that period defined the mould of what we still see today. Uh, the aftermath and the the mould of anti-racism from above, which was set up in the aftermath of the 1981 uprisings, defined the response uh, and what we saw in the aftermath of the summer 2020 uprisings. So for us, it's about understanding that period and understanding the creations that led anti-racism from above so we can see how it's still manifests in this day and how ultimately we organized against it and organized to dismantle it so by looking back in that period of history we're seeking to take the lessons from there for the benefit of today
1: okay so let's talk about these two terms this this black power era black power struggle and this anti-racism from above you both note in the book that the British Black Power era is criminally underdocumented, and you make clear that you don't wish to draw out the well-worn tale of Powellism and Thatcherism, but instead want to focus specifically on this kind of split in direction that anti-racism saw. So firstly, can you elaborate on what you mean by, by Black Power?
2: Um, yes, yeah, so Black Power in Britain, uh, I guess we periodise three stages of like post-war anti-racism in Britain and racism may be a dodgy word to use here, but I'll explain a while later. Um, there was a first phase of like, I guess, migrant organising from the new Commonwealth. So from like post-war you know, 45 to maybe 67 is when he died off really. Black Power we identified as a period from 1967 to 1981. And then we had this third phase of under from above, which became St. multiculturalism from 1981 onwards. Black Power emerged. Yeah, in 1967, I think we Market then because it was sparked by the visit of Kwame Therese, Dr. Carmichael, to England at the time at the Dialectic Celebration Conference. And his visit there fostered the, the emergence of the first Black Power group in Britain, Universal Coloured People's Association. What Black Power represented was uh, ultimately it was a consciousness, right? There were a lot of groups operating under the banner, who maybe didn't use the banner per se, but operating at the time. There was like no single unified organisation that represented Black Power. There were many organisations split apart often. They were squabbling often, I'm sure. Um, but ultimately is a consciousness, which is formed at a time when, on one hand, sort of the post-war social order of Britain was breaking down, sort of, you know, the post-war consensus of, you know, the welfare state, Keynesianism, and so on. It was beginning to sort of fragment or, or fray a bit, and it sort of fully fell into crisis in, in the early 70s before being rescued, from a point that way, by patriotism and neoliberalism. So again, it was one response to this sort of fraying social order. Another response was Enoch Powell, who ultimately formed the, the new right, or was a progenitor to the new right in Britain and the New Left, which obviously also emerged at the same time in response to this sort of crisis within the British state. So yeah, Black Power was, was consciousness. In terms of how it organised, it organised autonomously from and sometimes in like, antagonism with the established institutions of the British Left, including much of, like the white-led socialist movement at the time. Um, so in the, the first phase of like migrant struggles, they often organised like through trade unions, mainstream trade unions, they organised through the Labour Party, but often a very one-sided relationship, you know, excluded by ignored by often you know racially abused by unions the Labour Party itself but they still re- recognize that this is the role they had to play as effectively like subordinate people who come here and you know maybe aren't rooted here the idea of like, you know migrants here to stay for a bit and then go back home that was a prevailing sentiment so people didn't necessarily build autonomous institutions organizations at the time in six seven that's all like at that model there's a break from it and mostly black nation knew for the time realizing that no longer the model they're willing to take this was the first generation of British-born British citizens, effectively, no longer migrants. They had like a new claim to Britain and, and ultimately Britishness, if you want to put it. You know, they were no longer accepting second-class status. no longer accepting being subordinate among the white comrades. So they sort of formed separate organisations that organised independently, organised in communities, rooted in their communities, and sort of, you know, they set up what you want to call a closed circuit of, like, um, political culture, political organisations, sort of political units uh, within Black and asian heavy communities. Yeah, so Black Power was, again... Three parts, uh, consciousness, autonomy, and ultimately struggling on all the fronts in which racism emerges. So there was social struggles, there were struggles against police and immigration apparatus, bread and butter issues of workplace struggles. What I did was go beyond the somewhat parochial or narrow focus, that, again, much of maybe the white socialist movement was focused on purely economistic means right it's purely the model that you know we do enough trade union struggle enough workplace struggle that may be coalesced into a broader struggle black power organizations and parties and groups recognize that you have to include the social component as well as the the broader question of popular democracy how do we get the most excluded alienated and exploited sections in britain which are the black brown people at the time and the migrant populations organized within struggle you can't expect them to join you on equal footing if they are already you know at the bottom. So it's to open up a space in which the people could organize among themselves, ultimately play a role in the wider social struggle without being subordinate.
1: Thank you. So yeah, I think there you really nicely summed up the kind of myriad forms of organizing that we saw then, you know, within unions and at work and uh, schooling. You know, you had, as I think you reference in the book, Asian and African women working in solidarity in the kind of reproductive justice sphere. Uh, You had, you know, kind of squatting, you had groups kind of confronting street racism. Yeah, it was a really, it's really nice to see this kind of documented. I suppose there you've kind of summed up the conflict between these institutions like, you know, electoral politics, like the Labour Party and the trade unions and the difficulties that black and brown communities faced and yet overcame and still managed to win some successes organising within. I suppose then what's pretty crucial to talk about is 1981 and what is this road to 1981 what happened in 1981 in more detail Uh, at this point I think Ilyas is going to read a little bit from the book for you we'll have a couple of readings kind of interspersed throughout so yeah
3: So, the gradual, uneven convergence of forces on the left around the question of racism was met by a convergence of the governing classes around the question of repression. Conservative and Labour governments alike spent the 70s grasping for means to contain both this rising militancy and the spiring political crisis gripping the country. Successive anti-immigration laws in 62, 68 and 71 were a potent weapon of state racism granting the British increased control over the lives of non-white people in Britain. In the midst of the troubles, Britain's protracted war in the north of Ireland, the Labour government introduced the Prevention of Terrorism Act in 74. It was the first of a series of counter-terror laws, which would later be consolidated in the Terrorism Act 2000 and serve as the backbone of its unimaginably broad national security apparatus to this day. In 1968, the notorious Spy Cop Special Demonstration Squad of the Mets Police Special Branch was formed in response to the rise of Black Power and the New Left, a division whose sordid exploits are being uncovered in an undercover policing inquiry which finally commenced its hearings in 2020. HN 356/HN 124 is the code attached to the Spy Cop, Billy Biggs who infiltrated the Socialist Workers' Party branch in Brixton from 78 to 81, even getting elected as their treasurer. Briggs was present in 1979 in Southall at the demonstration against the National Front that saw the killing of Blair Peach by the Met's special patrol group. He reported on the Anti-Nazi League, Right to Work campaigns and on the campaign against racism and fascism and also likely on the Brixton defence campaign, which was set up in the aftermath of the Brixton 1981 uprisings. Amongst his reports to the special branch are leaflets advertising the Black People's Day of Action and the meetings of the SWP, including an event entitled From Riots to Revolution. In 1981, towards the end of his undercover deployment, MI5 was particularly interested in, and I quote, SWP's future direction, particularly as regards Blacks. In 1980, the St Paul's District of Bristol served as a warning shot from Black youth reaching boiling point in the face of incessant police harassment. The Black and White Café, a popular amongst local working-class residents, including Bristol's Black communities, was targeted by police who harassed youths, carried out raids and assaulted residents. According to Avon and Somerset Police themselves, the Black and White Café has been raided more times than any building in the country. On the 2nd of April 1980, Black and White reacted to the latest raid on the café by attacking police and destroying police vehicles. Over 100 would be arrested, with almost all charged, but none being convicted by a jury of their peers. Bristol's show of strength foreshadowed the major urban uprisings a year later, which was immortalised by demonstrators in Brixton, who led the charge against racist police with chants of Bristol yesterday, Brixton today. So the road to 1981 started. um, One of the prongs that began it was Bristol in 1980 and the uprisings in St. Paul's. Then as we move forward from that, at the start of 1981, we start not with the chants of protesters on the streets, but unfortunately with the tragic screams of children in New Cross. January 1981 saw the New Cross fire, wherein teenagers were burnt to death in a racist arson attack, uh, which was met by silence from government. Organised on the back of that by the New Cross Public Action Committee was the Black People's Day of Action, which saw 20,000 people march from New Cross all the way to Hyde Park, marching past institutions of power. And we did an event with Leila Hassan Howe last year where she spoke about how they purposely made their route go down Fleet Street, where the newspapers were based, in order to ensure that the newspaper's complicity in the racist depiction of Black youth was marked um, during that procession as well. In the aftermath of the Black People's Day of Action, we see police descend upon Brixton like never before in what was known as Operation Swamp. The term Operation Swamp was taken by Thatcher's 1978 speech where she talks about Britain being swamped by people of different cultures. Um, so taking that racist inflection of Operation Swamp, we see hundreds of young black people stopped on the streets of Brixton there, sparking the Brixton uprisings, which led the flame for uprisings which took place across the country. Moss Side, Toxteth, Birmingham, Peterborough, districts across the country erupted in flames uh, against state violence, racist legislation on racist policing. And the final event which we talk about as part of this flashpoint of 1981 um, takes place in Bradford, where the Bradford 12 who are activists have their premises raided and 12 of them are arrested for having petrol bombs, molotov cocktails on their premises, which they had prepared as a result of fascist attacks in their area, leading to the slogan of self-defense as no offense. Um, And similarly to the way in which the Mangrove Nine Uh, held their trial the decade previously. The Bradford 12 sought to use that court and that trial as a way to propel their political messaging to a wider audience. There were solidarity demonstrations, uh, not only across Britain, but I believe globally as well um, for the Bradford 12 as a result of them rooting by consolidating their politics within the international third world tradition, uh, which we sadly see less and less of today. And um, so that is why we situate 1981 and the road to those uprisings in that way.
2: Um, but just, I don't like, the question is why was that any one significant? Why was this year, why did it stand out? Obviously there were, there were protests, or riots, uprisings uh, in that year and that signaled to the Thatcher government that the additional tactics of repression were not enough. They needed something more than that. They needed some way to sort of absorb this sort of political fervour and anger in what they deemed to be more manageable forms of organising, right? Why did 1981 matter? Same way, if you look at 2020, the BLM uprising in America, it'd be reductive to only point that as a product of George Floyd's killing, right? That was a spark, but it was not just because of that. It wasn't even just because of Trump in government. It was represented like a crisis point, boiling point. Same way anyone represented a, a conjunctural turn, not just a year, but like a turning point in British uh, modern British history in many ways. It was two years into the Thatcher government, a first government, economic recession was, was still biting, fire attacks had persisted. Obviously, far had grown through the 70s as... The crisis in British society grew uh, and under Thatcher they found a political expression but they still continued. Many factors that sort of formed this time over when people felt necessary to rise up. But ultimately I think it's also important to scroll back a little bit to um, what was the black power or black radical critique of labour and the trade unions at the time, right? I think it's often maybe a bit uncomfortable but important to retrace the arguments that were used against trade unionism in Britain by the sections of the population who were most excluded from them, right? So their understanding of like, you know, the post-war era, the height of the welfare state, the height of Keynesianism, the critique that raised from black power organisations was that social democracy in Britain, even at its height, was not disfigured by racism but structured by it, predicated on it. So their critique was not just a standard socialist critique that you know, the unions and labour had failed to live up to their historical potential, but it was a more damning, ultimately a more far critique, that they, their Party and mainstream trade unions, or trade union leadership at least to some degree, as pillars of post-war social democracy, were institutions that actively reproduce racism, they were in many ways safeguards of a racist social order and had a stake in maintaining a position whereby black and brown people were kept at the bottom of society, where you know, they underwrote social democracy, they underwrote the welfare state, their labour was distracted for the welfare state team going, but they had to be kept at the bottom, they had to be denied any form of political expression or ultimately any sort of yeah, social upheaval. See, and that's why ultimately Black Power was so dangerous was because it wasn't to say that as of 1981 any organisation in the Black Power sort of universe was ready to ultimately offer the state. I don't think that was the case by any means. But what 81 symbolised was, you know, that their critique was forceful. It was unable to be co unable to be rolled into or incorporated in within a postal social compact. In the same way, for example, the white working class had been brought into the fold of... of British national politics. These were the sections who resisted that, could not be absorbed in the same way. And again, what '81 represented was that in the, in the pathway to this reconstruction of race society and the refashioning of capitalism into this neoliberal mould, um, what was needed was to absorb, incorporate and ultimately disarm these populations and this politics from presenting the threat to this new era that it had to the old era. 1981 was a conjuncture and um, both the protests and the response to them, well I recognition the fact that, you know, this was a population that had been excluded, alienated, and formed its own politics that are potentially represented an insurgent and dangerous sort of um, critique and response to the failings of British capitalism.
1: Nice. Yeah, so from echoing what you were saying as far about this threat that this era of black power organizing presented to to the state and the states kind of what do we do next? how to we re- dismantle this movement before it grows even stronger. So from here, I'd like you to talk a little bit, if you can, about what an anti-racism from above means. Uh, having defined this bottom-up struggle that you have, I'd like to speak a bit more about what the hallmarks are of an anti-racism from above and who is responsible for this anti-racism from above and where this politics comes from.
3: Yeah, um, we've mentioned anti-racism from above. Quite a bit already so what that describes is the outcome of what we list as a three-pronged interconnected strategy post 1981 to contain and co-opt black power politics that emerged between 67 and 81. So the first thing it consists of is black enterprise redefining a political problem of racism into one of simply economics and seeking to develop a layer of responsible black leaders connected to the entrepreneurial project of Thatcher and developing a cultural project on consciousness asking for self-sufficiency and dispensing with the collectivism of social democracy, this sort of idea of creating a black middle class is the first prong of anti-racism from above. And this was not just promoted by the Thatcher government, but we see it codified particularly in the Skarman Report, uh, which was published after the 1981 urban uprisings in the October of that year. And the Scarman Report, in some ways, is almost a foundational text of anti-racism from above. And I just mentioned there briefly, like responsible black leaders. And we use that term particularly because the Scarman Report came out following not only uh, Scarman's inquiry, but also a visit by the MP, Timothy Raisin, to the States. Uh, he went to the States in, the, I think it was October of that year. Uh, and on his return sent a report to the Prime Minister and he spoke about how in the States at the time under the Nixon administration they had defanged the civil rights movement and turned it into the race relations industry through the creation of a black middle class and the promotion of responsible black leaders who could talk on behalf and who could defang the militancy of others in the struggle. So. That's the first area, the promotion of the black middle class, uh, the creation of the black middle class and the creation of responsible black leaders. Secondly is representation politics, the politics of black faces in high places, turning organic black communities into flat constituencies to be represented and or groomed for electioneering purposes and gutting them off their political substance in favour of simple representation in spheres of power facilitated by the turn to identity, premised on recognition politics to be recognised as a social unit by the state and in turn to be represented by supposedly representative organising. So this representation politics relies on the homogenising of communities and glazing over the cleavages of class, caste, etc. and silencing political differences. So when the goal becomes less about representing a politics than representing a demographic unit, This becomes the trappings of minor fame, of funding and of patronage. You get a tendency towards fragmentation of ever smaller configurations of identity jostling for a space on the scene. This was also facilitated by the Labour left and their relationships with the new social movements at the time. And the final prong of anti-racism from above is the promotion of the growth of non-profits and charities funded by local and national governments to undertake nominally anti-racist work. This creation of civil society replaced the organisational forms of radical popular parties into professionalised organisations which were less embedded in communities than in networks of patronage, creating a dependence on funding, encouraging depoliticization and professionalisation and promoting a scarcity culture uh, amongst people who were once comrades. This strategy was designed to contain and undermine the politics of black power and transition over to a form of anti-racism lobby politics which turned the terms of engagement from the conflict, which defined black power, towards conciliation, paving the way for what we term anti-racism from above, which became codified later in the policies of state multiculturalism.
2: And just to uh, consolidate that, just, I guess, go back to the conversation about how does revolutionary social change happen? Uh, where does it come from? Um, it does not just happen spontaneously. It does not emerge organically necessarily out of a protest or the bigger protest or a bigger protest after that, right? Social change is driven, and also has been driven, by organisations which are steered by a uh, leadership with clear political programme and political you know, orientation. Right, uh, and so by changing these three components, as exist under Black Power, what any Racing from above did was sort of again preclude the opportunity uh, for social change and sort of reroute it into sort of moderate reformism. So, if you no longer had uh, radical parties, organisations that were embedded within black and brown communities, and set heads or non-profits, NGOs which embedded within patrons' networks guts or the organisational potential to sort of channel and organise rebellious energy. That's one thing. And if your leaders were no longer organic leaders come up uh, in, in the course of struggle through maybe workplace struggles or through social struggles, but instead sort of handpicked community leaders who sort of profess to speak in the name of their ex-community because they have a relationship to them mainly by the fact that they were born there or had a, you know, some sort of identity relationship to them alone, then that again precludes that the emergence of radical political leadership. And finally, if... You have the the carrot of like entrepreneurialism or like getting out of the cycle of deprivation by, you know, having the carrot dang in front of you or like, you know, the way out of this. That doesn't involve socialism, doesn't involve revolutionary social change, but ultimately you can get out of it by starting a business up, getting rich, getting out of the cycle. And that, again, draws people away from the ideas of of socialism that had predominated in the era prior under black power towards more facilitatory mechanisms or, or processes or ideologies of black capitalism and so on. So what I did, what Annuation from did, was transform the terms of engagement with and the relationship to political power. So instead of black power, we had black civic power represented by NGOs, non-profits, and a new sort of third sector. Instead of black power, we had a black corporatism, which is what I guess a sort of lobby approach, which just mentioned. And we had instead of black power, we had a black uh, maybe cooperation with power through enterprise advisory roles. So again, what this free strand process does was sort of disarm. Black man populations within Britain from the organisational, ideological and and leadership configurations that are needed to advance social struggle and sort of transform the relationship of Black power and and Black um, communities' engagement with with power into a very more uh, moderate, conciliatory sort of mediating mechanism rather than confrontation mechanisms.
1: To elaborate on something that is, you know, very pertinent in what you were just kind of speaking about, Elias, um, I suppose I want to dig in a little bit into representation politics, which seem to dominate a lot of our conversations about race and racism, and also reveal the kind of, I suppose, shallow ends that that representation politics kind of brings. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about representation and where that takes us, where a kind of representation as an ultimate goal takes us in terms of our struggle. And I think Ilias you going to do another little reading.
3: So on the 7th of May 2021, Sadiq Khan was declared the winner of the London mayoral election, allowing him to maintain his historic position as the city's first Muslim mayor. Ten years prior, the city had erupted in the largest uprising of its kind since 1981 after the police killing of Mark Duggan in North London. In the decades since, the morbid arithmetic of deaths in police custody has increased by 376, one-fifth of them at the hands of London's Metropolitan Police. Then-Mayor Boris Johnson, who responded to the uprisings with a suite of policing powers to criminalise black youth, now serves as the Conservative Prime Minister of this country. Then Director of Public Prosecutions, Keir Starmer, who ran all-night courts to facilitate draconian prosecutions of these youths, now serves as leader of the Labour Party that Khan represents. Sixteen years prior to the election, Brazilian John Charles de Menezes was shot dead at Stockwell Tube Station in a counter-terror operation, with officers having misidentified him as a Muslim terrorist suspect on account of his, quote, Mongolian eyes. Denied justice or accountability, Dimenezes' loved ones would be forced to look on as the commander in charge of the operation, Cressida Dick, rose through the ranks to become the first woman commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, lauded by Khan as an historic day for London. In this way, the injustices and brutalities of racism that disfigure the social landscape of Britain are airbrushed from sight. In their place, supposed wins such as the election of decidedly milquetoast mayoral candidates of colour, or for that matter black politicians to the White House, are repurposed to serve as shoddy proxies of social progress. As representation politics have become more widely embraced by the mainstream in places like Britain and America, they have increasingly become unmoored from their history in anti-racist struggle, and cut off from any forms of self-organisation. The shift in priority towards representation politics and mainstream party politicking has had a profound impact on the way people understand or relate to the ideas of collective anti-racist organising and how they mobilise towards that end, sometimes with disastrous consequences. In 1981, the district of Hansworth in northwest Birmingham exploded as part of the wave of uprisings that summer, when Hansworth was again aflame in 1985 uprisings, reports from that episode suggested hints of an inter-ethnic undertone this time round, with some attacks by African Caribbean youth apparently directed at Asian shopkeepers. 20 years on, the adjoining district of Lozels yes. Liz- <laughs> saw the crushing nadir of race riots between blacks and Asians sparked by the rumour of the rape of a young black girl by Asian men. Lazelle's 2005 was and remains the bleakest illustration of a growing divide between racialized groups in Britain. A renewed anti-racist movement in Britain today cannot elide this issue, but to rebuild one requires a more meaningful discussion about the material roots of this division and the disparities between different ethnic groups in the country. So, both in this part and within other places in the book, we talk about the growth of representation politics and what it means. And specifically also, we talk about how representation politics was again forced upon conversation uh, in the wake of the summer 2020 uprisings. But I think maybe we'll hold on and come to that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think particularly um, pertinent discussion around the politics of representation, really also within locating it within our wider understanding of, of what race is this is like a lot on Twitter, and maybe not so much in real life, but I'm seeing like a real increase in biologically essentialist understanding of race, in that black and brown communities, or inter ethnic communities have become so fractionalized and so removed, that we can only define our own struggles in our own terms, and we're losing the ability to kind of connect them within a wider framework, I suppose, of capitalism. So, with this division that we're seeing on new levels and this increasing conflict and hostility between racialized groups, I feel like it's really important for us to sit and outline what race actually is, because popular discourse is increasingly suggesting a natural and essential quality of race. The common threads, especially when you talk about like this black power organizing, and this is in more detail in the book, when you talk about people organized with a distinct knowledge of their own struggle, but made extra effort to kind of connect their struggle within a wider framework of of kind of all racialized people's struggles. So the common threads that once ran through our understanding of racism between communities of colour have been severed to the point that we now can't relate to each other or aren't able to speak on behalf of each other or, you know, even attempt to forge any connection between our experiences of racism, uh, rendering us really unable to deal with the uh, increasing hostility of white supremacy and capitalism. So can you please read for us the part in the book where you define your understanding of race?
3: Yeah. So how do we develop a framework in which to integrate variegated experiences of racism and connect them to concrete processes of social control and exploitation, of the extraction of labour, of social exclusion and dispossession or displacement, Take the infamous case of Altab Ali, the Bangladeshi textile worker stabbed to death in East London by three teenagers in 1978 in an act of paki bashing. Are we to identify racism only insofar as the individuals that drove the knife into Altab Ali's neck? What then becomes of the mass theft of wealth from his homeland by British colonial rule? which drove people like him to Britain for work in the first place, or for the matter the British politicians who denounced and decreed against this immigration inflow from the ex-colonies and placed the target on the back of those like Al-Tabali, or the capitalist class who had maintained urban industrial spaces like London's East End as zones of permanent squalor and breeding grounds for racial resentment. Or the British labour market, which confined Asians like Altabali to toil for long hours in industries like textile work, forcing him to walk home through the dark streets of Whitechapel that night. Racism did not enter the equation once those three teenagers set eyes upon Altabali, tabali It shaped the conditions that placed him in that corner of East London on that fateful night in 1978. al was not just a victim of circumstance, but a casualty of history. So we present the following working definitions. Race is a social system. It marks out the structural relationship of certain social groups to power and to processes of exploitation, and it indexes divisions of labor and social control. Racialization is a dynamic process that draws on physiological, cultural, and social markers to determine the boundaries of races, Groups that can be racialized downwardly, negatively or upwardly and the boundaries shift over time and space. Therefore, racism is an active process of locking groups within a wider social structure of exploitation by maintaining and defending the system of race through the sheer exercise of power or policy. Race and racism serve to consolidate power within the British state as well as underwriting British imperialism abroad. These often work in tandem, for example in the way that dehumanising racism is used to justify British military aggression against people abroad, who are then subject to racism when they are forced to flee to Britain, before being integrated into the bottom rungs of the social system as refugees or immigrants, by racializing border powers. Race is never innocent, it is differentiation for the purposes of domination. And if we accept this, then the trying to decouple race from racism is a chicken-and-egg situation. Racism is race in motion. These are the definitions of race and racism which stress the fact that they are politically, socially and geographically contingent dynamics, rather than stable, that they emerge from a messy configuration of physical markers, social characteristics and cultural symbols that are shaped and reshaped, by changes in political, economy and geopolitics. In Britain, the structuring logic that anchors race is determined in relation to the Britishness of the native. Race is shaped by the boundaries of inclusion and exclusion from Britishness and the benefits which that status confers. It is determined first by immigration policies policing who is and is not allowed into the country and who is accepted into or denied citizenship, and then by domestic policies of policing, surveillance and the labour market, locking ethnic or social groups within particular roles in society. The laws or policies that govern race and racial categories can draw together or diffuse groups of people, The remaking of a British national identity from the 1830s tethered the English working class to their ruling elite as members of an Anglo-Saxon Protestant nation in opposition to Irish Catholic migrant workers, thereby undercutting working class solidarity. Meanwhile, racist anti-immigration laws in Britain through the 60s and 70s For example, progressively excluded African, Asian, and Caribbean people of the Commonwealth from the boundaries of British state citizenship, but in doing so provided the basis for solidarity between these geographically and ethnically diverse groups as black communities. In all these distinct cases, social differentiation was designed for the purposes of domination. Race is not, in the final instance, about colour, but about the demands of land and labour, accumulation and extraction.
2: In the first chapter of the book, we we go into a bit of in-depth theoretical discussion about race and racism is, how do you define it? I think that's important from the outset, because obviously how you define race and how you define racism in turn determine how you act upon race, how you intervene in race and sort of the social solidarities upon which you um, organise to challenge it, right? And I think often we have a sort of common sense definition of race or understanding of race, which is imported often wholesale from America or popular culture, American popular culture, uh, where race is defined by skin colour alone and where often the the fundamental racial dynamic in America is obviously the dynamic of the settling slave and the uh, indigenous population who genocided. Trying to import that, extrapolate that, come up against a lot of uh, barriers. If you just again copy and paste what happens in America here, you're left unable to understand the question of the Irish in Britain and and their role here as a racialized underclass, you're unable to understand people often even quite annoyed at this idea of like um, blacks and Asians organizing together or the idea of the black and Asian people came from similar social circumstances in Britain because it's not the same in in America. We sort of indigenize and send racism a bit to the British context in order to intervene and act upon it. In defining that. We pushed back against a few things. So one, we rejected the sort of the flattening turn whereby race is, um, again, made out to be common sense, where it's confined to color alone or identity alone, right? We move away from that, and if as, as a relationship or a dynamic, which again, is flexible, it's attenuated by circumstances, and it changes based on time, uh, geography, and um, the political circumstances of, of the time. We also needed to reconceptualize relationship between race and racism. We don't think race can exist Outside of racism, it is one and the same, and we say, you know, racism is race in motion, ultimately. Race is the whole material for which racism is defined and reproduced, so on. So ultimately, that does come to the conclusion that race must be overcome, but, importantly, we think that must be done by confronting the processes that underpin racism, not by ignoring it or skipping over it or trying to pretend we're all one human race. I think that's a very you non-liberal know, approach, which we reject. We identify... Tackling racism, it's not about the preservation of racial identities, it's not about preserving some authentic Asian self in our case or so on, it's about tackling um, labour exploitation, uh, immigration exploitation, policing state violence and so on and so forth, the processes that maintain race as a category in which you can sort of throw in the dispossessed people of Britain and sort of lock them in there, right, so ultimately race is a process and we try to sort of identify how it came about, how we act upon it and how we respond to it in the British context. Uh, but for anyone who's reading the book, the first chapter, we front load the more theoretical discussions there, don't feel intimidated or put off by that, you know, proceed, I guess I guess these are from there. Just to, um
1: I was going to kind of ask you to both talk about policing and kind of police as I suppose the enforcers of a kind of race, but I'm not sure that we maybe have time for that and instead I might just move on. And if you want to understand a little bit more about policing, then you can read the book because there's some very interesting information. It gives us an example that I didn't know about of basically the Marine police force who were established in the UK, the first kind of police force in 1798. And they were literally created to protect the wealth gained from slavery, both from looted goods and slave made goods uh, from working class rebellion, which is a very clear portrait of the function of the police. But to move on. And kind of on the police, I suppose, we're seeing, like, this mass mobilisation. There are obvious critiques to be made of where it is going, but we're seeing it nonetheless, and we're seeing a very public conversation about the role of policing and a kind of movement beyond policing. I want to talk about this because in the introduction of the book, you note that the political resistance that we were seeing on the streets in 2020, 2021. You know, the Black Lives Matter protests, the anti-Zionist pro-Palestinian demos and the work of Palestine Action, a direct action group that I will talk to you about in a minute, um, and also the Kill the Bill. And now we're seeing withdrawing consent, um, which is a brilliant movement against the police. You say that all of this mobilisation and organising has altered the initial conclusions that you have made in the book, and I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on this, what were the initial conclusions? You may have already touched on them, but what kind of changed your minds? Uh, And also, if you could maybe suffuse in this answer what it was like for you both to be researching this history of the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, whilst also seeing in current time the unfolding of a new kind of political motivation.
2: Um, yeah, I can answer this quickly. It's probably worth mentioning that the initial idea for the book and discussions around the book were in April two thousand and twenty, so just after the pandemic hit, first lockdown, and before Black Lives Matter two thousand and twenty sparked off. I think it's important to note that down that we weren't just jumping on the Black Lives Matter gravy train. We actually had the idea beforehand, <laughs> but I think that that shaped a large part of the book and our response because initially it was. We recognize the political context of the time, right? We just came out of the general election. Everyone was destroyed out of that. We had the lockdown. Everyone's confused out of that. Everyone's sort of disempowered. And our conclusions in the early stages were potentially a lot more pessimistic than maybe the final book is, or you know, initial thoughts at least, were pessimistic. Like uh, we're in a very bad place now. It didn't seem very hopeful. How we got to the point now where anti-racism as a politic is so um, theoretically bereft, and obviously the uprising sort of um, challenged that in many ways. I think there's upsurge of interest of youth activism. Like that black-led and Asian-led. It sort of moderated that initial pessimism, but ultimately we did see, as the course of the uh, uprising progressed, um, how they fell into like, a very familiar pattern, which we identified as being a product of this post-81 context. So how powerful the first protests were, and definitely were, gave us a lot of hope. Why was it the case that those protests suddenly devolved into discussions online about whether like, a black and Asian people should organize together? Why did it become a question of, in the post-black-classmatic context, Black Asians can't work together because there's more Asians in the Tory cabinet than the black people. Like this kind of discussion is, why do we get drawn back into these discussions that we should have progressed in the course of the struggle? Why did not overcome these barriers? And ultimately, you know, what we're coming up against was a historical pattern that was set in place by the process that we identified and the free pronged process that we described in the book. Ultimately, 2020 it again tempered our, our tone somewhat, but in many ways also affirmed our conclusions. So again, ultimately, the book is simply a critique of like um, young people unmoved from the history cut off from a radical history that existed before their time and unable to sort of maybe grasp or grapple with that or recover that how do you help bridge the history into now as we tried to do what came out in the research uh, we so we part of it was book research we also went through archives so the Bishopsgate institute in london black culture archives in brixton in london one in warwick university can't remember the name one in coventry a few things here and there that's important a lot of documents from these groups they aren't digitised, they weren't put in books, for example. They're in like documents, papers, or house, houses, archives, often forgotten because of that. It's humbling to read it, definitely, first and foremost. I think the main thing for me, at least, that came across was the sure sense that victory was within the sites at the time. So again, if you recognise in the period of the late 60s, the early 70s, it was not just that people on the move in Britain. Um, fundamentally, I think the main axis of resistance at the time was the third world struggles for national liberation so it's further at the time being used as a self-conscious term of power and not in sort of um, pejorative sense made nowadays but this is a time when the formerly colonized people of the world were on the move and are setting themselves through national liberation struggles for example struggles in um southern africa the struggles at the cuban uh, revolution the uh yeah, palestine liberation struggles sort of radicalizing post 67 and so on and so forth and Black Power, a lot of what it captured, the sort of the zeal that it captured and the energy that it captured in the politics was informed by these federal currents from the global South, rather than just being a purely domesticated affair of what are the new left in Britain doing. It just influenced a sense of confidence and a sort of strength from what's happening out back home. I think what we'll miss now is failing to see how how much of world history, especially in the 20th century and now is driven by what's happening in the global South. We often have a very parochial vision of what's happened in America our uh, on only extends as far as what we do in America, how we copy that or learn from that. And ultimately, at the time, and now I feel, the federal struggles are the motor of history. And we need to recover the history, we recover our sense of solidarity with struggles of people at the cold Face of imperialism today. And yet yeah, that came out in the text, came out in the book, and it's really what, what inspires us and inspires me for sure.
1: So to kind of end, and thank you for that. I think there hasn't been enough time to pay uh, attention to the importance of anti-imperialist politics that resurfaces throughout your whole book and, and is obviously, like a, a as you say, as for a, a pressing need of a socialist anti-racist movement. So I kind of want to talk finally, what is this socialist model of anti-racist organizing, especially in the wake of all the kind of undercurrents of activity that we're seeing now. I want you to share with us your vision and maybe you won't be able to encapsulate this wholly, but, but your visions, even if in scraps, of a socialist, anti-racist organising.
3: Yeah, so when we talk about the recovery of the anti-racism from below, we sort of give a prescription of three steps. First is for an anti-racist analysis that reinserts itself within the struggles against imperialism and capital, and capitalism. Then, for an anti racist praxis that reintegrates the social, political, and economic facets of racism to turn into a broader struggle for popular democracy. And finally, to build this anti racism into a socialist framework for class struggle that takes as central the dynamics of race, class, gender, and citizenship in order to develop a truly universalist project. And they touched on that, especially like the importance of reinserting anti imperialism within anti-racism today. And we see this particularly as a result of the different actors on the field of anti-racism, as it were. So increasingly, and especially after the 1980s, once there was the decline of the third world radical tradition, and when we talk about that third prong of anti-racism from above, the growth of that civil society, the NGO model, the NGO space, we begin to see the growth of organizations and groups that are more accountable to funders than the people. And that have to tone down both the militancy and the urgency of their language and turn it into council speak. And as a result, that internationalist tradition that governed black power, that anti imperialist internationalism is lost. And that's why we, even when we see, for example, you know, there's nowhere this is more starkly represented uh, than the struggle for Palestinian liberation. Uh, when we look at the discourse around Palestinian liberation in the UK, what went from firm internationalist third world solidarity back in those days has now been replaced and the struggle for Palestinian liberation has almost been left on the doorstep of human rights discourse in the UK uh, and not just in the UK but broadly internationally as well and there are all sorts of limitations on both the NGOs that govern the human rights landscape who are accountable to to funders and have very little mechanism of accountability to the people um, as well as the over-reliance on legalism and human rights law, but neither of which will will save us, given the urgency of the situation we have at hand. And so the recovery of anti-imperialism and reinserting that into the struggle and locating our struggle within that is one of the most urgent prescriptions to take forward today.
2: And I guess just to leave on the last note, um, if you want to really conceptualise or visualise how social change is made as like a three point triangle, you have on one hand the um, economic sphere, you know, the base of capitalist society, you have the social, we mapped it onto question of visibility or like you know, representation for you know, marginalized groups, and the last one is the one most often excluded is the question of like democracy, popular democracy, uh, the question of like self-determination for groups who are exploited, and excluded. That goes beyond your ballot box democracy into actual the means for which people can actualize a political agenda and build power and, and build organization, right? So we have nowadays, and racism is sort of the social arm decoupled from the question of economics, decoupled from the question of popular democracy. You have representation of people, black faces and high places, and, places, and it's meant to stand in for social progress when it clearly does not. Some people on the left, unfortunately, some of my comrades, have a tendency towards, again, prioritising the economic arm, if you want to call it, which is also important, it's central, as well just, it's necessary uh, to have a central programme. But again, they maybe make references to the social question, but cut off the question of democracy, of popular democracy. Hence why, in the, in the Black Power era, certain groups on the left were very forceful in the critique of black power, calling them separatists, calling them black separatists, calling them extremists and so on. Um, without recognizing that, you know, they could be reconciled if there was a proper effort to reach out and bridge the economic struggle to the question of proper democracy and combine that with question of social gain in sort of this 3 point triangle at which point you get social change and all that that. So yeah, fundamentally, social and racism reintegrated the three points, isn't happy with just pure representation alone isn't happy with purely uh, economic change or not redistribution alone, but ultimately the couples these questions question of re-empowering, rebuilding the space within society in which the most marginalised, exploited populations can organise for themselves, and in the process add the politics to the economic struggle, reinfuse that, reinvigorate that, and actually bring socialism, uh, you know, give it its um, groove back, really, making the radical oppositional politics it should be, rather than sort of where it has been often a means of reconciling or mediating issues and sort of, you know, navigating contradictions without resolving them.
1: Cool. I think at that point, it's nice to close this q and I'd just like to say thank you so much to you both. There's so much that I wanted to talk about the, within the limitations of this time. I, I couldn't, but um, I'm really thankful for all the things that we have been able to engage with. And again, if anyone wants to read more, then buy the book and you can read it there.
0: That was Naya from Bookhouse in conversation with Asfar Shafi and Ilyas Nagdi on Radicals in Conversation in-house. You can find out more about their book, Race to the Bottom, on bookhousebristol.com, along with details about Bookhouse's other forthcoming events, many of which will, of course, appear on this podcast series in due course. We'll be back next month with episode 55 of our regular panel show, and episode 3 of RIC In-House, which features Rodrigo Nunez talking about the themes of his recent book, Neither Vertical Nor Horizontal, A Theory of Political Organization, So do stay tuned for that. Until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye.